If you have your Bibles, go with me to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 14. We will start at verse 15 and work our way through 27. What a joy it's been to be in the book of First Peter for the past uh, few months. What a joy to, to work through that. I am thankful uh, to have gotten to talk through from the book of First Peter about the ideas of suffering. And suffering for, specifically, for living faithful Christian lives. We're going to be here in John 14 this week, and I am. We've made a little bit of some adjustments to our preaching schedule over the next few weeks. Uh, going, looking ahead to Lord willing, September 8th, um, that uh, we're actually going to work through Second Peter uh, between now and the beginning of uh, Lord willing Refuge Church. Uh, so uh, Rusty's going to get to preach a good chunk of that as as I prepare for some sermons coming in September and October and November. Um, so I'd encourage you to start reading Second Peter and start studying Second Peter, and that's where we'll be at for about four weeks, uh, Lord willing, starting next week. So let's read John chapter 14, verse 15 through 27. <clears throat> Jesus says these words, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask a father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me and because I live you also will live. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Let's pray. Father, I would pray and ask the same words that Jesus has said in this passage. May we see the peace that He gives, not as the world gives, but His peace. And let not our hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. For Your glory and our good, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Since we're kind of parachuting into a passage here, let me give a little bit of context uh, leading into this very briefly. You have those who had been discipled by Christ personally, had troubled hearts at this moment because Christ is about to leave them. He's about to depart from their presence. I mean, these are people, I mean, again, Think about the context with me. 
These are people that had walked with Jesus, that had danced with Christ, that had ate with him and drank with him. They had rested under his wings, their lives finding peace and refuge and strength. Their souls encouraged, deeply encouraged and enriched and blessed and strengthened and taught. Their lives had been turned upside down and changed in ways that they couldn't even explain or would never have imagined. For many of them, he was like the father that they had never had. And now, that's the context, now he's going to leave. Jesus is going to depart. He has told them of his departure. And they were fearful of what is life going to look like. And this is a key phrase for us this morning. What is life going to look like once he is gone? What will life look like when this dear Lord, Savior, friend, when he departs? He's about to leave. Our hearts are troubled. In many ways, you could say that their hearts were troubled because what they had hoped in was about to be taken away. Their peace and their restfulness in, or who, in whom they had found something that they had never had before. Was a, that person was about to be taken away. And isn't it true of us too? Isn't it when whatever it is that we place our hope in is taken away that our hearts begin to be troubled? I would encourage you even as we think about this morning and one o'clock this morning that you would sift through the troubledness of your heart. Isn't it when that which we place our hope in is taken away that our hearts begin to be troubled? Isn't it that that which we have found our rest in, our comfort in, our joy in, when it is taken away or is being threatened to disappear, that our hearts begin to be troubled? Now in this case, I mean, we don't know the hope of, or the, the hearts of the disciples here, but we see fruits and I think for many of them, it's clear that their hope was rightly placed in Christ. And, and Christ is about to leave. He's about to leave them. And so their hearts are troubled. But what I find also interesting, that here at the outset of this passage, that in the context of troubled hearts, right? That is the context. Troubled hearts hearts, brokenness of this world, troubled hearts, right here in the midst, Jesus says, keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. I mean, what, G Jesus, I mean, I mean, come on. Our hearts are hurting. We're scared. We're facing depression. Life is uncertain. It's difficult. All these changes, things 
not like I had planned or hoped. This, we thought we were going to be with you forever. Of all the times for you to call us to holiness and obedience, Jesus, why now? And then on top of that, listen to, listen to the phrase. It's not just keep my commandments, but what's the first part of that phrase? If you love me. All of this trouble, this tension in your heart. And Jesus says, you will keep my commandments if you truly love me. I mean, I can just imagine. I mean, if I'm standing there in the crowd, I'm going, what? How dare you challenge my love for you, Jesus? My heart is troubled. And yet, in the midst of this, you have the audacity to challenge my love for you. I mean, we're struggling right now, Christ. Our hearts are hurting. And you challenge our affections. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Isn't it also true that when life gets hard, when trouble besets us, that our, the love of our heart is revealed? That when heat gets applied, when circumstances get applied, that which we most love treasure, hope in, that rises to the surface. It gets bubbled to the top. When life gets threatened, when, when pain besets us, when trouble sets the things that we had hoped for, that we longed for, that we trust in, that our treasure lies in, it bubbles to the surface. The love of our hearts are exposed. And Jesus is pointing that out for us here. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. Jesus recognizes the propensity of a troubled heart to turn away from the living God. Now, we've known and we study in other passages that, <clears throat> that the options are two. You choose to love God ultimately, love Christ ultimately, or we love ourselves ultimately. And everything else that we love apart from God is really just the fruit of loving ourselves supremely above God. And Jesus recognizes this propensity. He says, if you love me, here in the midst, this entire chapter is filled with the troubled hearts of the disciples. And he says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. What Jesus does so pastorally here, so wise, is that he calls them to action. Much like Peter in the book of 1 Peter, in the midst of their suffering, he calls them to holiness. He calls them to action. He calls them to something more. He gives them, in the words of Paul Tripp, marching orders. Jesus does the same thing here. He gives the disciples marching orders. He says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. He's saying, if your affections burn deep for me, then you will carry out everything I've commanded you to do, even in the midst of your troubled hearts. Indeed, I think his implication is that in your troubled heart state, 
that even in that, your love for me must be supreme. And if it is, then even in the midst of troubled hearts, you will persevere in doing as I've commanded you to do. Jesus is saying to us, there's there's something greater that you and I have been called to, that we're a part of, that that, that transcends even the circumstances surrounding a troubled heart. So Jesus calls them to grow in their love for him and says that they will demonstrate it through their obedience. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments even in the midst of this troubled heart. Now Jesus says three things concerning us him and obedience that I want to pull out for us here in this passage. The first one is this. There is a call, clearly here, to faithful obedience. There is a call to faithful obedience. If you're taking notes, that's like sub point one of if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's a call to faithful obedience. Let me draw some things that are probably obvious, If not, it's okay. I want to make them obvious and make them explicit. All His commands. All His commands. There's a call to faithful obedience to all His commands. Not just some, but all His commands. How many times do we choose commands of Christ that are convenient for us? Or we just ignore the other ones. Or we just skip over those ones. Or we conveniently forget those ones. So let me ask you kind of a little bit of a test question. To think about it this way. How many of the commands that you follow are you not quite so passionate about? How many of the commands do you follow that you are not quite so just excited to do? Uh, yes, there's a correlation between our affections and our actions. I get that, not denying that, but I mean, Jesus is talking about that here. But the tricky thing is that our passions for one command to the disregard of another command actually reveal sinfulness in our hearts. And it's really easy for us to become passionate about one command and overlook another. You know, a lot of times those get revealed quickly when we become harsh judges of other people. Those are usually the commands that we're very passionate about. We likely feel like we accomplish ourselves, so we hold other people to that standard, right or wrong, and then we overlook these ones over here. That's much of why Jesus says, check the log in your own eye before you go remove the speck from your brother, because Jesus understands that there's this, again, this propensity in us to overlook these commands that are not quite so convenient for us. Jesus says, if you're passionate about me, if you love me, you will obey all my commands. He doesn't say, and I want to help us here. He does not say, if you love my command, you will do it. He says, if you love me, 
you will obey my commands. If you love me. Again, later he will teach them all that he has commanded. And this implies, if you love me, again, that you will keep all that I have commanded. But you see, the danger here for us is this. As I think we oftentimes become impassioned or in love with the command instead of the one who wrote the commands. And so we cherry pick the ones that fit more nicely into our plans and our hopes. Ultimately, we choose the ones to be most impassioned about because they're the ones we feel like we can accomplish that make us feel righteous. And Jesus doesn't say, if you love my commands, you'll obey them. If you love this aspect of the law or you love this aspect of Christian living, you'll obey them. He says, no, no, no. If you love me, you will obey them. And I think so many times we struggle with obeying all that he has commanded because we have fallen more in love with a law that we think makes us feel righteous instead of in love with the one who wrote those commands and kept them himself. So this week, I would encourage you, ask the question, am I more in love with these laws that I feel like I can keep that make me feel righteous, or am I more in love with the one who kept them all because he wrote them and he died for my failure in keeping them? So one, there is a call to faithful obedience. Two, faithful, faithful obedience even though it's tough. A call to faithful obedience, even though it's tough, even when life is hard, even when our hearts are troubled. Even when brokenness seems to overwhelm us. Remember life from 1 Peter, right? Life is going to be hard, particularly for those who follow Christ. It's going to be a challenge. It doesn't just alleviate us from the trouble. We're not just... uh, kind of put aside and we need to avoid suffering or the brokenness of this world. No, our hearts are going to be troubled. The world knew Jesus loved the Father because He obeyed the Father's command, especially the difficult ones like going to the cross, right? One person said, this love when life is soft, safe, and easy proves little. He goes on to say, who do we know loves his wife? The elderly man parading around his 20-something trophy wife, or the elderly man bathing and feeding his disoriented wife as she slowly loses her memory? You see, when life is easy, it's very easy for our love to not be for Christ, but be for the ease of the situation. But when life is hard, when things are happening that we don't like, the temptation to love those things, right, is slim. Proving the love of our hearts for the Father, for Christ. Jesus shows us what it's like to love through difficult obedience, right? He's, he's in the garden. He's about to go to the cross. And God, could, could, could I avoid separation from you by enduring your wrath? Could, could, could I please avoid that? I, I've not, never experienced that in my entire life, my entire existence. 
for all of eternity, never separated from you, Father. If I could avoid that, please. But I trust you. I love you, and I trust you. I will go. Third, love for him must be our motivator. Love for him must be our motivator. I'm going to tease this out a good bit here before we walk into the rest of this passage. Love for him must be our motivator. Listen, supposed love for Christ without obedience to Christ isn't love. Love, supposed love for Christ without obedience to unto Christ is not love for Christ. Right? It's, it's what we believe plus our action like shows us what we really believe, what we really treasure, what we really long for. On the flip side of this, obedience without love as its motivator, love for Christ specifically as its motivator, is nothing more than a pursuit of self-righteousness. We will never obey His Word if all we feel is a sense of moral obligation. Now here's the deal. It might look like following Him. But our deeds are nothing more than self-righteousness. Our attempts to be right with God if they're not motivated out of a love for God. If all we're trying to do is shore up our standing before God. If all we do is look at the words of Jesus and think, I can make him happy if I do this one. Or he won't be angry or disappointed with me as long as I don't mess up this command. If that's our thought process, if that's our thinking, then we're not obeying out of love for him. We're obeying out of a motivation to earn our righteousness before Him. To make ourselves right with Him. And when we do that, who is the love ultimately for in that moment? Love of self. It's not supreme love for Him that's motivating us. It's supreme love for self. I want to shore up my standing. I want to make myself right. I want to do these things, and these things make me feel right with Him so that I can get this. 1 John tells us what? We love because He first loved us. Our love is in response to His love. See, here's the challenge, though, is that our the flames of our love for Him must be stoked in order for our our obedience to Him to grow. So this love for Him, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. This love for Him has to be stoked in order for the obedience to Him to grow. Our obedience isn't primarily motivated out of a sense of debt but out of the freedom of love. Put it in other words, I have tasted the Lord and He is good. And now because I love Him and delight in Him, I want to obey. 
I want to know His commands and follow His commands. But there's the problem. There's the struggle. How? How, Jesus, are we going to do this? How can my love for you, I can't control my loves. They like chase this thing, and then the next moment they're chasing this thing. And then, and then when heat comes, it goes, oh, I, I've been loving this thing. I didn't even realize I loved this thing more than I love you. How? We need you to show us, Jesus. We need you to walk with us. We need you to fix our hearts. We need you to tell us which step to take next. We need you to help us love you. And now you're going to leave us. Isn't that right at the crux of our disobedience? Follow me. It's right there in that moment. When you believe just for a second that Jesus has left me, therefore, I must have this. Go back to the garden. God does not love us and care for us, therefore, we must eat from this tree. We can't trust God to do what's best for us. He has left us in a sense. Therefore, we must take things into our own hands. And the same thing is true for us. In that moment, I don't know that God loves me just quite enough. I've got to get the love of this person over here. I've forgotten that Jesus hasn't gone anywhere. So with my anger, I need to get what's mine over here. And it's right at that moment that our love for Him dwindles and our disobedience ensues. It's right in that moment when we forget that He loved us and died on the cross for us. That He is our supreme treasure. I feel like He has left that I must go take matters into my hands over here. And here's what's incredible. Just incredible. Is that Jesus understands our frame. He knows this fundamental issue. And how, oh how He has compassion on us. Oh, how he has the insight and the wisdom to help us. And, and indeed, what's, what's amazing is God's creation of us that would put us in this place where we are utterly dependent on him. Jesus understands this. He knows how often we forget that he loves us and how quick our love for him dwindles. And it's in the midst of these troubled hearts that he says in verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you, what? Forever, right? Forever. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's never going to leave. Forever. 
There will never be that moment when he's not with you. There will never be that moment when you're left alone. There will never be that moment when you would have any reason to question me. Forever. He will help you remember forever. And Jesus points them. What's he doing in this moment? He points them to the future. He points them to future enabling grace. He points them to the assurance of things to come. Look ahead. He'll be there tomorrow. He'll be there in a week from now. He'll be there in 20 years. He'll be there in a million years. He will be with you forever. He did so, Jesus did so in the first part of this chapter. He says, I will go and prepare a place for you, saying, look, look, I will be with you tomorrow. I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare something for you in the future. And then I will come back and take you there where you can have me, right? That's the beginning of John 14. Again, a place, an eternal place where you can have Christ and you'll never lose him. And now Jesus says you will continue in your love for me and your subsequent obedience to me because there is grace that is coming to a nearer future. There is grace coming so sufficient there is hardly words to describe it. Not only am I going to take you to an eternal place where you can have me, your hope and your joy will be yours forever, but I'm going to dwell with you now in a way that's beyond your comprehension. Jesus says to them in many words, I love you. I know your hearts are troubled. I know despair has set in upon your weary souls, but I love you, and let me assure you of my love. You see, our hope rests in his love displayed for us in future grace. I got one pastor prayed, oh, that the earth-shattering ramification of God's love for you would bore into the depths of your soul. Listen, the holy, just creator of the universe whose train of his robe is said to fill the temple loves you and loves me. There's no reason for him to love you. There's no reason for him to love me. But through his son, he does. So how are we going to obey him? Because we love him. Now, how will the flames of our love for him continue to be stoked in the days ahead? In the days ahead. How? Here's how. By his promise of future reminders of his love for us. Listen. If your love for him is weak, then your picture that you have painted of him is weak. And Jesus says, I am going to do things. I'm promising three things, three promises of future grace that should stoke and continue to stoke the flame of your love for me and birth then the subsequent obedience that I have called you to. The first promise is this. Know that I love you by the promise of my spirit. By the promise of my spirit. Verse 16, 
Again, back to this passage, we already read it. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. He will send the Spirit to indwell them. Now there's a grammatical point in this verse that is important, that's crucial. And that is the idea of another helper. The word another can be understood in a couple different ways. It could be understood as another of the same kind or another of a different kind. Another of the same kind or another of a different kind. And the word that Jesus uses here is another helper of the same kind. I'm going to send another helper of the same kind as me. What he was saying was, you're fearing that I'm going away. But he says to them, I'm going to send another helper of the same kind. And in Romans 8, the second part of verse 9 says, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So Paul picks up on this idea that Christ, that His Spirit indwells His people. And any who do not have the Spirit are not the people of God. And this, here's the deal, here's Jesus' point. This is meant to bring immeasurable comfort to us. Imagine this, imagine that Jesus was sitting here, his physical body, in this room, and he was taking appointments for right after service, okay? Imagine that. I mean, that'd be pretty intense, for the record. For the record, I would not be standing up here, right? I sit in that chair, and Jesus, you just do your thing, Okay? Uh, he'd probably be like Matt, get up and preach, and you know, and that would just be a disaster, I'm sure. But imagine Jesus was here with us. Imagine you got to say to him things like, you know, I've gotten to this point in life, but I still don't have it together. Can you help me? Or you could say, I feel worthless. I do my best, but I can't make a change. I can't overcome this. What's the answer? Or maybe you say, you know, relationships are not what I had hoped for. My marriage is not what I had dreamed of. Or friends, it's just not what I thought I'd have. Can you help me? Wait, Jesus, what, what would he do? Like, he would know just what to say, wouldn't he? He would know just what to speak into your heart. He would know just the right questions to ask. He'd know just the right verse to remind you of. He'd know just the right, the right aspect of your life to point out and to explore. And he'd know just the right person to tell you to go talk to. And he'd know just the right amount of crying to cry with you and grieve with you and he'd know just the right amount of rejoicing that would comfort your soul and he would know just perfectly everything that you would walk away maybe problems not solved but certainly your hope would be full the logic of this text is that what we have in the holy spirit is more superior to that. And some of you are going, what do you mean by superior to Jesus, right? What I mean is in frequency and 
and function, if you will. Like, Jesus is a person. The Holy Spirit indwells us and goes with us everywhere. The Spirit of Christ is with us, and that's the lot. Jesus said, I am going, and He will come, and He will teach you all that I've commanded. He will be with you forever. And the fact of the text is that we have access to this Spirit. Now, we have access to Christ Himself through Christ's Spirit now. That's what Jesus is saying. When I go, I'm going to come and dwell inside you through my Spirit. And wherever you go, in whatever circumstances you find yourself, I will be with you forever. This is superior to the experience of those troubled by His departure. Do you hear me, Christian? This is greater than what they had experienced to this point. There were times when Jesus had to go sleep. There were times when He had to go pray by Himself. There were times when He had to go get on a cross What is the Spirit going to do? Verse 26, the second part. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Let me exhort you quickly and clearly here. Listen, he can't bring to memory what, he, what isn't there in the first place. But he can certainly teach you all things that he has said as you hear what he has said through his word. This comforter, the idea is someone to come alongside, one who shoulders the responsibility of another, one who encourages us. Think of it like this, like in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 6, Paul was depressed, and the Holy Spirit encourages Paul by sending Titus it says in verse 6, But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. What happened? Titus came alongside Paul, and then Paul was ready to go. There's an idea of like another friend for you. Again, a concept that's beyond words. The point here is that when he says another helper, he says another one just like him. One to come alongside you, pick you up, console you, just like Titus did for Paul. So the question is this, have you really embraced this promise? I mean, all of us, to some degree, to another, have maybe embraced some, but to what extent have you embraced this promise? To a controlling extent? That, that you know tonight that you're going to walk and commune with the Spirit knowing that Jesus is right there with you? tomorrow at work when you have conversations about the events of the weekend that the spirit is right there with you that in that moment of in another day another moment of temptation to sin or to trust in something else other than him that the spirit is there to remind you that he loves you he died for you and that he is securing a place for you that you don't need to have this thing you're tempted with 
And when I say, have you really embraced this promise, I'm not saying, can you have a theological discussion about it? Although, that's important. What I'm saying is, have you embraced this promise? And I don't mean in like a shallow, oh yeah, the Spirit's with me always, right? Oh yes, I believe that. I'm saying, have you embraced it? Does that come to bear on the reality of your day? Does that make a difference in how you talk to people, how you tweet, how you send text messages? Does it make a difference in your hope and in your emotional life? Does it make a difference in what you love? Have you really embraced this promise? So Jesus says, know that I love you by the promise of another one just like me. He will come and he will walk alongside you, teaching you and reminding you about me and what I have said. Second, know that I love you by the assurance of my resurrection. Know that I love you by the assurance of my resurrection. Verse 18 through 20. He says, and I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live in that day You will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. There's a lot there that we could unpack, but briefly, he is saying, I'm going to return to you in such a way that you will never doubt again that I am the Son of God. You will see me. This is a powerful statement. It's a promise of his post-resurrection appearance. I will appear. And he says to us, know that I love you because I live, you will live too. Because of my resurrection, you will live too. You will be resurrected too. Now listen, you and I have not seen his resurrected body, but this crucial phrase is true for us too. Because Jesus was resurrected, we shall live this resurrected life too. We are assured of his love because he conquered death and the grave for us. And we know he loved us because he rose so we would no longer need to fear death that one day we might rise with him. And if we don't have to fear death, then we shall never have to fear Jesus leaving us. And he says, because of my resurrection, I shall come to you. He says, I, listen, this is a phrase, I will not leave you fatherless. I will not leave you as an orphan, right? As one without loving parental care. Do you see that? He will not leave us fathers. We are adopted. Now think about this. The healing relationship that this brings. What could bring more security than to know we are not alone and the other one with us is our Father. The creator and sustainer of our souls. Think about that for a second. This brings healing. This brings life. In that moment where I'm tempted to 
get this thing that I know God does not want me to have. To think in that moment, I am not alone. My Father is standing next to me. And He loves me as His child. What more could I want? Like Kent Hughes said this, most, he's a pastor, preacher, he says, most, the most healing of all biblical doctrines. He says, we hang our faith on the doctrine of justification. But this doctrine, the doctrine of adoption, helps us relate to the other doctrines of salvation. The fact that we have been adopted. Some of you know who J.I. Packer is. He says this, in the same way you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion, if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everyone that Christ taught Everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Because of my resurrection, I will come to you. You know, something I'm reminded of when I think about this passage is that it, it means that I'm a child even when I don't feel like it. Whether I don't feel like it because my sin is overwhelming me. I don't feel like it because I'm chasing after other things. He says, I will, listen, he says, I will not leave you as an orphan. There's no but statement in there, right? If we're his children, which again is not the whole world, right? But those who are his children, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. Again, Jesus is saying, because of my resurrection, the Spirit will come. He's going to work in you in such a way that you'll be reminded that you are not fatherless. You are not an orphan. You have a father who deeply loves you. And third, know that I love you by the promise of my peace. By the promise of my peace. Verse 27. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. But not... Well, I'm sorry, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Right? Their hearts are troubled because the peace that Jesus has brought them, they believe, is about to leave. They believe that Jesus is about to depart, and with him is going to go this peace that they've now experienced. And Jesus says it's a peace, it's not a peace that the world offers, the world cannot offer this kind of peace. So think about that. What are the places you and I try to find peace? In relationships with others? That our life hangs in the balance or hinges upon the peace that we could find with other people? 
Or maybe it's the peace that we find in having our own power and influence over life or circumstances. And if I don't feel like I'm in control, then I don't feel like I can have peace. Or maybe it's in securing comfort or rest. If I can just have that, I'll have peace. Or when things go our way, what, there's a lots of places. That's the kind of peace that the world offers to us. But the peace Jesus speaks of is His eternally secure peace that He has had with the Father, that He has experienced with the Father and the Spirit for all eternity. Think about that peace with me for a second. The peace Jesus had in never questioning the love of the Father for Him. Never wondering if the Father was pleased with Him. Never giving a second thought to the Father's good commands. The peace experienced between Him and the Spirit and God. And Jesus says, that peace, that peace, my peace, it's yours. I give that to you. Now Jesus knows, I'm thinking about it, Jesus knows at this moment what it's going to cost in order for him to give that to them. Right, this is pre-crucifixion. But Jesus knows what is coming. He knows the war that's going to take for him to give this peace to us. And this peace will soothe the hearts of those who are born again. When the world is in turmoil, you and I are at peace with God. And I thought, oh child, have you grabbed a hold of this promise in the depth of your soul? Jesus' peace with God is now your peace by grace through faith in the saving work of Jesus as the one to die for your sins. Listen, Jesus experienced the wrath of God so that you and I would experience peace with God forever. Peace for us came through great violence for Him. Peace with God was delivered when Jesus offered up his life to be brutally slaughtered. Peace with God was bought for us when Jesus paid the price for the sins of God's adopted children. The struggle for us is that now, even though the outcome of this war has been determined, like an insane person, Satan and his battle rages on, right? It's still, the fight is still ensuing. The war is still going on as if it has not, as, this, as if the outcome has not been determined. And just like that, our flesh still rages on as though we're not at peace with God. And Jesus says, look, listen, stop. The war's done. I, I'm going to go take that war. I'm going to fight that war. And I'm going to give you my peace. Uh, now to make sure I'm clear, this is not Jesus and God duking it out. So we'll be clear. 
but there's this, this lack of peace that Jesus takes on himself for us, the enemies of God. And he takes the punishment for our sins on the cross, that God is just in giving to us. He instead gives this payment on Christ. The Spirit inside us says, though, your soul is at peace with God. He loves you. He has made peace for you through the death of His Son. Jesus recognizes our troubled hearts. He recognizes the painful state in which our hearts are in. And He says the suffering that besets you, the grief you now endure, the sin that compounds the hurt of your day, the uncertainty and struggle of your circumstances. Jesus says to us, Obey my commands, all of them, because you love me. He says, obey them. You will do this if you love me. He says, you have new hearts. You have tasted his love, and you know it is real, and it's enduring. The Spirit will remind you of this. He will remind you of this love that I have for you and all that I have commanded. He will teach you these things as you fight to remember that I first loved you each and every day. Church, know His love by the promise of His peace, the assurance of His resurrection, and the promise of the Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to You this morning, this afternoon, studying Your Word, I pray that You would help us to know the love that You have for us. Father, the love that You have loved us with already, the love that You have shown to us through Your Son, Jesus. Father, I don't want to be naive to think that everyone in here has trusted in the work of Jesus on the cross as the payment for their sins and trusted in that alone for their salvation. So, Father, I pray that if there are anyone in here that does, if there is anyone here that does not know that you have loved them so, Father, may you make that clear in their hearts now. Father, we pray these things. Thankful for your grace. Help us to know the love that you have for us. Father, you are good and kind and merciful. And Father, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you guys stand as we sing this morning how deep the Father's love.